This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Devaki Raj, CEO and founder of Crowd AI. Devaki completed her undergraduate and master's in statistics at the University of Oxford and subsequently used her expertise at Google Maps. She took this knowledge and experience and prompted her to start Crowd AI in 2016, which was picked up by Y Combinator and selected by TechCrunch as one of the top eight companies to watch. Um, Forbes Top 25 Machine Learning Companies, NVIDIA Deep Learning Inception Awards finalist, and finally Forbes 30 and Under, uh, Inc. Magazine's 30 Companies and Under. Devecki, that is an amazing accomplishment. Welcome to Leaders and Legend. Thank you so much for having me, Eileen. I'm really excited to be here. So I got to ask you, can you describe, you know, such a great accomplishment at such a, a young age? What is your leadership style? Yeah, I think working at a large company and then moving directly into, I guess, being thrown into a leadership position as I started my company, right? I had to learn what that was. You know, I started Karate about half a decade ago, um, and I had to learn what management style best suited me. And I think as we grew, I tend to be more focused in terms of being a servant leader style. Um, I think it's important to bring others up around you um, and that the people around you, right? I think as a leader, you can't know everything. I think it's important to um, provide guidance. Um, But I actually learn from everybody around me because a lot of them, frankly, have more work years of experience around me. So that's how I think about it. I think I I follow more of a servant servant leadership style. So do you change your approach depending upon a situation and, and uh, it, have you ever faced any challenges or obstacles that you really had an aha moment on, on how to approach leadership? Yeah, I think it definitely was over COVID, which is, are we making the right decisions around uh, doubling our team size? Are we making the right decisions on how we think about remote work? Are we making the right decisions on should we start hiring outside of San Francisco and DC? Are we making the right decisions on leasing, right? Just yesterday, um, me and my leadership team sat down and said, should we move forward on getting a much larger space when, you know, San Francisco just went back down an indoor mask mandate. So thinking about all these different things on a day-to-day basis, it's kind of little things that, that you have to step back and try to see a more holistic picture when, really, there's not a single person in the world that has the answers for. So the aha moment was, sometimes you don't make the right decision. But if you put in front of your team or your colleagues, this is the thought process around that decision making, then they're going to be there to support you. And that's really something that took me a while to learn. I, I always expected to have the right answers. But during the pandemic, running a company Nobody has the right answers, but you have to be able to put all these pieces of information, present it to the people around you, and and they will have faith that you have made as much of a right decision as possible because you have their best interests in mind. 
David Kay, I read a little bit about um, your background and you talked about your dad in one of these interviews. Um, did you think you've gotten a lot of your leadership style, you know, from your parents? I think I got my ability to speak and, you know, show leadership from my parents. I think my parents are definitely academics. Um, so very different. I think I'm the only person in my family. My brother is still, you know, he's still, he's still young. Um, but in my family that I've decided to take the pure entrepreneur route. So rather than leadership style, I think what I learned from my father was the ability to, to ask questions, to not hold back, to go to a conference or to go to a leadership summit. And when people say, does the audience have any questions? Not being the third or fourth person to ask questions, but if I really want to ask a question and have something to contribute be the first person to ask questions. And I think that's something that I learned from him, which I'm super grateful for because I can now feel the confidence of talking in front of a very, very large room of people that are probably smarter than me, people that have more experience than me. Um, And I think doing that from a very young age has really helped me. So for example, when I was really young, probably as young as, you know, six or seven, we grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, because he was at Yale at that time. And he would take me to conferences. He would take me to lectures. I was able to see Jane Goodall speak. Um, and that, that kind of exposure at such a young age is, was really invaluable for building confidence and, and being curious and being able to ask questions. You've met a lot of people along the way. Uh, uh, you know, any great leaders that come to mind and the reason why you feel so strongly about their leadership style? I'm really lucky to have met a variety of people from all different backgrounds. In terms of great leaders, I think, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, Jane Goodall is somebody that takes a very quiet approach to leading. But she, I think what's so incredible and brilliant about her style is that she has single-handedly focused on something for so long and she constantly is optimistic about that view um, while also being able to spread her word about environmentalism and spreading her word about how it's important that we continue to protect um, the environment around us. I think it's a very interesting leadership style that I hope to emulate, which is quiet leadership, absolute brilliance and focus in an area and kind of respect of, of, of her peers around her. And really everyone um, from all types of ages and, and all types of different socioeconomic groups. Um, and it's like a diverse set of people that respect her because it's more of a, that quiet leadership style that people s- step back and say, wow, they've really, really thought about this. There must be something to it. And that's really incredible and hard to do. So over the years, you have been very successful at many projects and maybe maybe some very important leadership opportunities. Is there anything that you're most proud of? I think uh, there's two things that I'm, I'm really proud of. One is, you know, we're at, at Crowd AI right now. Um, we're about 45 people. Um, and just building a very cohesive, brilliant but high EQ team. Um, I think that it's very important to build a company culture that allows for people to be their own leaders, to 
to be able to support their colleagues. And so that's one thing I'm really proud of, which is this great team that me and my co-founders have built. Um, in terms of product, um, what I'm really proud of is at CrowdAI, we have built this deep learning algorithm that helps identify fire line perimeter from drones. And this was actually used in Creek Fire in Yosemite. Um, and so let me just explain a little bit about what we do, which is at CrowdAI, we build a platform for enabling anybody to build their own computer vision AI. And specifically, we deployed this with CAL FIRE and Air National Guard. And it maps wildfire in real time and ports down geo-reference polygons to the Android device of firefighters. And so that has been really incredibly interesting, powerful for me, because not only do I see the value it has being a California company, but people are actually and have used it. Um, and that's really, really exciting and, and really powerful when this technology that you've built for the last half decade is being useful for a person that kind of has to do some of the hardest work in the world, which is, which is fighting fires. Um, so that's, that's extremely rewarding and exciting. Do you have a chance to meet the people that uh, actually use the technology? Have you had an opportunity to meet some of the firefighters, for example, that, um, you know, have gotten feedback about how this has changed the way the dynamic of how they approach a, a project? Um, AI can really change the world from my perspective for the good and, and uh, maybe not so good if it's used incorrectly. But this is a great example of technology being used to advance all kinds of projects that can really come down to saving lives. Yeah. And it's actually incredible. And so we were lucky to have the opportunity to actually define the problem with the firefighters. We actually got them from Cal Fire to come and explain to us what is a spot fire, where on fire lines is there more intensity. So we actually worked with them from day one, which I think is so key to building strong AI, which is you need to get the subject matter expert that understands our problem set and understands how AI can help save them time, money, and resources once it's built. Um, and so we were lucky to have been able to work with firefighters from, from day one. That's fantastic. I'm speaking with Devaki Raj. After the break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, communication, and why it's important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Devaki Raj, CEO and founder of Crowd AI. So, Devaki, uh, what is the most important type of decisions you can make as a leader of an organization? I think the most important decisions is trust, um, which is, are you hiring the people around you that you can trust? And two, you can trust to make the correct decisions, right? So if you hear that particular train of thought, which is, I don't think the most important decision is a decision that you make yourself. I think it's an important decision that, because that's something that you could do. You could always trust yourself, right? If you have the correct information, um, especially when you're running a company, you want to be able to do the correct thing based on all the pieces of information that you have. 
So what's that next level of trust? How do you make that decision making point not end at you? And that's the next step, which is, are you hiring the right people that you could trust to make those correct decisions? Um, And that for me is the most decision, the most important decision I can make as a leader. So when you've sold both your solutions, both to the commercial markets and to the federal market or to the government market, we were just talking about helping California fight fires. Do you find that you need to approach things different when you're working with a public sector organization versus commercial? That's, I think that my, my theories on that have evolved very much so. So um, I think now what I've realized is relationships matter. So let me, let me step back, which is we started actually first selling to the government, primarily because we were really lucky. Um, so about half a decade ago, there were a lot of satellite, commercial satellite companies coming online, right? Um, small sat- satellite companies, large satellite companies, et cetera. They had a lot of pixels being sold to the government. Um, but really what people don't want, they don't necessarily just need pixels. They want the analysis. So at that time, Crowd AI, we had built fantastic computer vision models off of satellite and aerial imagery. We had won a couple of competitions and published a couple of you know, major research papers in leading AI journals. So these satellite companies came to us and said, hey, we're selling this data to the government, but the real value lo- add lies in the analytics. So that's how, what we did, which is we helped them build the analytics and they sold that to the government. And so because of our work there, um, we actually were brought on to some of the flagship DOD AI projects. So we actually started selling to the government. Um, but what we realized is that a lot of the work the government does with small businesses very much sit in an R&D sphere. So now what we're learning is that while we were lucky to come in and work with the government, how do we create this sustainable business with them? How do we create and convert our R&D dollars into O&M and sustainment? And that's something that we're learning right now, which is what, how, what is the process for doing that? And that I think it comes down to relationship management. Have you built trust Um, Do you know the people that are making the decisions that ultimately are going to be the most um, impacted by, by this particular AI product? And I think that on the, on the commercial side, it's not very different. Just the timelines are a little bit shorter and there's much more clear path to sustainment. Um, On the commercial side, you sign a pilot, you have particular milestones. If you meet it, they extend to a yearly contract And you actually have that path and that path is much more shortened um, because essentially it's like a try it, see if they like it and then move forward because you could contractually build those things in. On the government side, it's definitely a little bit different. Um, And I'm happy to talk about all the different contracting vehicles that we've been on um, and how it, how it, how it um, differs, but ultimately it does come down to relationships. um, And I don't think that's any different from the commercial and federal side. So relationships. So, you know, with leadership, what is the relationship between leadership and you were talking about, you know, you've now built a team of 45 people who are doing this great work, but you're building a culture too. How does leadership affect culture? I mean, you know, the famous saying by Peter Drucker, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So tell me a little bit about your view of the relationship between leadership and the culture that you've built here at Crowd AI? 
Yeah, and I don't want to take 100% credit. Um, I have a great set of leaders around me. You know, Nick Borenstein and Pablo Garcia both started Craniae alongside me. Um, and from the very beginning, culture was really, really important. Are you working with the people that you want to work with and come into work every day when we could come into work? Are we excited about the people that surround us? And so for us, from pretty much the very beginning, we had a cultural fit interview. Um, and that's really, are you happy to not only work with them, but are you happy to see them every day, grab some coffee with them? Um, and are they people that are, that have a high EQ, you know, and that, that for us was really important. And so we built that into our interview process from day one. Um, because what we realized is for startup, for us to attract talent, right? Right now, Crowdii, we're competing with the largest cloud providers in the world, right? The largest tech companies in the world. So how do you attract talent? You attract talent based purely on not only the, the work that you do, not only the, you know, the intellectual rigor and technical achievement you could have on the team, but it's who you work with. Um, and we saw that very viscerally during the pandemic when people were looking for different jobs because they realized life is short. Let's work at companies that I enjoy being with. Let, let, let me work with colleagues that I enjoy being with. Um, and so that's something that we built in from, from day one, especially in the interview process. It's really, really important. Vicky, we both worked at Google and part of the Google experience when you're interviewing is you get rated Googleiness or your cultural fit. Uh, did you take a, a, a chapter out of that when you're looking at it? Because, you know, it's it's sort of like a, a, a concentration factor. You, you know, you end up spending more time with people that you are at work than, unfortunately, sometimes with your family, right? So, you know, they can really make an impact on your organization. So uh, did you kind of look at it from that perspective? Because effective working teams have a tendency not to be exactly alike. Actually, diversity is very important. But having compatible is pretty darn important. Definitely. I actually didn't think about it. Maybe in the back of my mind, this idea of, of being a good person, right? I.e. Googliness. I don't know if we have the crowd AI um, equivalent of that word. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody that I worked with at Google, not only were brilliant, but also were good people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would like to think that that definitely rubbed off on me in terms of the type of teams I would like to assemble around me. You brought up the fact of tech talent. And I believe right now, um, especially in the areas of AI and ML, uh, it's a talent war out there. And you're, you're competing with some pretty big companies with incredible uh, benefits. And, and uh, like you brought up Google and you have Amazon out there. Um, so what do you think we should be doing to help develop more talent out there? Because it's almost becoming a national security issue. There's such a limited amount of talent in this area that can make such great impacts, like the project we were just talking about, about how to just be more effective at fighting fires. Yeah, so we actually took a long time to think about it, because as I mentioned before, initially what we were in the business of is because there's such limited talent very large. We work with Fortune 500 companies and, and the government, and they came to us and said, we can't attract the talent to build the best-in-class deep learning models. 
for solving a variety of problems. And you have to remember, these are not just 10 problems, right? This is hundreds of thousands of AI models that could be built to improve workflow, save money, save time. And so what we were in the business of was providing models for a variety of different use cases. But we realized is this is completely unscalable, but also it's very hard to attract that talent, right? Most of that talent will go to very large companies or stay in academia. So how do you bring that knowledge from these particular institutions out into the market, both on commercial and government? Um, and I'm not talking deep tech companies. I'm talking the long tail of Fortune 500 companies that are manufacturers, that are insurance companies, that are utilities, um, that aren't a tech company. So what we realize is that we need to empower workforces to scale AI. And that's why we really built this end-to-end no-code platform for anybody to build their own custom vision AI. And so what exactly does that mean? There's a lot of different pieces of the AI stack that non-PhD data scientists can do to really move that forward, right? It's about data management. Do I know where my data is? Who has access to my data? Does the proper metadata, is that associated with those proper pieces of information? You know, labeling, right? That doesn't involve their highly, highly technical workforce. It involves a person that's super close to their subject matter. Automatically building models based on metadata and labels. Testing the valuation. We started with computer vision because you could physically see if the model is doing as well as the decision that you would make by just looking at it based on feedback from models, right? And so there's a lot of pieces of AI that doesn't necessarily need to be locked into a very, very, very highly technical audience. And that's what we're really trying to do, which is if you really want AI to touch all aspects of society, if you really want to have a diversity of thought building this AI, which is really, really important, especially for respond, building responsible, explainable, and ethical AI, then you need to empower the next generation of the workforce and the current generation of the workforce with the tools to really understand when when does AI do well, when when doesn't it? And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. I think, you know, obviously the future is, is, is automation and, and prediction and, and things like that, but there are a lot of low-hanging fruit in which automation can help right now. So let's empower the workforce to think about those use cases, to think about what in their workflow could be automated or at least could be augmented with AI. And that's how you get to educating more, um, more of the workforce about how AI can help them. I'm speaking with Devaki Raj, CEO and founder of Crowd AI. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through change. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Devaki Raj, CEO and founder of CrowdAI. Getting organizations to adopt change are always one of the biggest leadership challenges that exist out there. How do you approach leading an organization to adopt major change? I mean, you're actually bringing a lot of change to organizations with the work that you do. You've been talking about in the earlier segments about automating and and changing. That culturally changes the way an organization approaches their mission. So tell me, how do you approach change? I think change can happen in many, many different ways. 
Um, I could talk about internal change. So at CrowdAI, we have to be more flexible to remote work. So how do we think about that? Which is, for us, it's just over-communicating. And and I I think that's part of a lot of what we do at CrowdAI, which is over-communicating and being transparent, which is these are the reasons for why we're making these decisions. And then this this is the outcome of those decisions. So what exactly does that mean? In terms of transparency, I tell the team how much money is in the bank. I tell the team what our um, burn rate is. And I think that's really, really important. In order for you to approach change, you have to have all the pieces of information available to you. So that's how I think about change internally if we're making a big change, which is, oh, we decide to do remote work, or maybe we're not going to be doing a physical office, right? Things like that. Give everybody the pieces of information and then help lead them through that decision-making as to why we are changing processes that we've previously done. On the other side, when we think about external, we think about external sales and why should people adopt AI and change their current workflow, right? It's very similar. You give people all the pieces of information and explain to them cost savings, time savings, right? Or, you know, impact to mission, but you need to do so in a tangible manner with numbers, like highly quantitative, um, because that's something that is, you know, you could do an apples to apples comparison. And that's really what people need, which is, this is what I'm doing day in and day out. Is it really impacting my particular workflow? Um, But give me a particular example. Give me a number that I could go to my boss and say, hey, this process has saved me X amount of hours. And that's really when we've found that people are more likely to change. Again, people are likely to change because if you provide them with the correct information um, and the relevant information. Sounds like data gives you clarity. Uh, you, you brought up data over and over again. So when you approach things, it sounds like you approach by making it not personal, by presenting the data first and then giving that clarity of, of w- what the change could be. Is there any stories, especially around COVID, where you were getting your team to, to migrate from working together in person uh, to being remote and also being able to uh, get customers to visualize that change with the work you do? Yeah, um, I could start with internally, um, which is start date are we going back to the office and when are we going to go back and open up the office? Right. So the way we thought about it, which was let's put a list of all the other big tech companies and all the dates that they're starting their work. Um, Let's put together a list of all the federal, local and state um, mandates and say, Hey, based on this information, this is when we're going to open up the office. And this is, This is the rules that are going to be um, associated with them. And I think that, you know, a lot of people were itching to come back, but a lot of people were nervous to come back. And so providing that information helped them make their own decisions if they want to come. We're not mandating anybody to come in, but if you do, you know, these are these particular rules that we're going to have to be working within. On the other side with the government, um, a lot of different use cases, I think, are, are really important for us to explain how much time you can save via automation. So one particular example is, you know, working with the NGA. What we tend to do is for a particular area that you're looking at from satellite imagery. So we've got some folks that are former analysts on our team 
we actually timed them to say how long would it ta- would have taken you to look at this particular image and make the decision on counting or identifying what 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 you're looking for and then we do the same thing um, by running it through our model and our you know our models depending on the use case will take seconds versus the hours that it took to or maybe even days that took to process that particular image um, from a normal workflow. So what we actually do is we we time it um, and we provide a quantitative answer because we do have you know folks that worked at the government that did exactly this workflow um, on our team. What do you believe will be the next frontier of opportunity to be able to apply machine learning and AI and some of the great work you're doing? I think we're just at the very, very, very beginning. Um, there's two ways I think about it. The first is right now, in order for one to adopt AI into their workflow, right, you need to explain the what, which is what can AI find in, for us, computer vision, in this image, in this video, and how quickly can it do it, right? But the next stage, which I think is extremely powerful, is the why. Why is this happening? What are the upstream or downstream changes that are going to happen now that I can see what is happening in real time? So let me actually explain what that is. And I'll give you a manufacturing use case, which is for one of our customers, right? They're a large beer manufacturer. Right now, we are identifying in real time what is the fill line of the beer in a can before the top gets sealed. So in real time at you know thousands of cans per minute, we say low fill or high fill or exact fill. But that's purely from an image perspective. But imagine a world where we go and say, okay, well, it looks like that there was high humidity in that particular area. There was a valve that was faulty. And um, for some reason, the can is not is is a little bit dented. This is why there is low fill, right? So it's not just what am I seeing in the image, but understanding upstream why this has happened. On the government side, it's a little bit different, right? If you can um, automatically identify a building and you constantly look at that building, and you see that using AI, um, rather than having an analyst look at hours and hours of footage day in and day out, Um, an AI model could say, hey, I could identify a vehicle outside of a building, but every three days, there are five vehicles at that building, right? So building patterns of life and things like that. I think that is a nearer term workflow that's going to get people really, really excited. But as we think about really where AI should go and how to scale AI across variety of different agencies, variety of different commercial groups, we really think it's how do you get these empowerment and AI enablement tools into the hands of the workforce? That I think is where the real future lies because you and I could come up with a bunch of different use cases, but we really can't think of all the use cases that subject matter experts live and work and breathe on a day-to-day basis. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Devaki 
Raj, CEO and founder of Crowd AI. Next, we'll find out the advice to the next generation of tech leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Devaki Raj, CEO and founder of Crowd AI. You know, when I look at some of the things you've accomplished, I would describe you as just very, very thoughtful and very, very smart and completely fearless. My favorite things I read about um, is how you very quickly put theory into practice with government agencies and, and enterprise customers. I mean, your example of fighting fires, you did that extremely fast. Uh, the company's technology has helped more than just the Pentagon, you know, um, with drone imagery to identify wildfires. Um, I, I read that after Hurricane Michael in October of 2018, you allowed telecom companies, for example, to analyze satellite images and figure out where phone lines were down. I mean, and very quickly react to some of the folks uh, in the Panama City area. So, um, Tell me uh, about how you lead your team to be so effective in these extremely stressful situations. Um, it is definitely a journey. Um, so we actually work with a, a couple of nonprofits to provide this data as well. I think the most important thing and the reason we started Crowd AI is how can AI help people that need that help? And it honestly, is extremely important for humanitarian aid and disaster relief. And we want to be able to provide that data when disaster strikes. And that's what's so powerful about AI. And that's what's so important. And so we actually do spend a significant amount of time focusing on those particular use cases. We have this um, online alert system. Anytime that new imagery comes in from NOAA, if there is a you know, if there is a disaster to turn that around and, and provide, um, you know, assistance around identifying air, buildings that have been destroyed, flooded, you know, wildfires are, are near them, et cetera. We just, we, we prioritize that because we realize that for people to really understand the value of AI, you need to show it to them when it's timely. Um, and so for us, it's uh, for us, it's also just part of just giving back. Um, we're, we're lucky enough to have built this technology. Let's use it for things that are ex- maximally effective. You've been a successful CEO since 2016. Um, obviously, there's no single formula to be successful um, in every startup. You know, one size does not fit all. But what lessons have you learned for the next CEO out there that wants to do a startup? Um, you know, what do you, you know, or what do you wish you knew before you got started? I think that in terms of advice, it's not easy. You know, every day you're learning something drastically different and having to make drastically different decisions. Now, as I mentioned before, I was talking to one of my colleagues, which is, the the thing I do on a day-to-day basis necessarily isn't coding anymore, um, but it's just managing of people and managing of teams and helping them ride these waves of change with less turbulence. So just being able to be empathetic to everybody on the, on the team and understanding that everybody is rowing the same boat together, I think that's the best way to think about it, which is 
it's not just about one person. It's about everybody doing something together for a, an ultimate goal and a vision. In terms of advice, I think it's is it's a hard journey, but I wouldn't do anything else, right? It's an extraordinary journey that I I am lucky enough to to have this privilege. Um, there's still a long, long way to go until we, you know, hit IPO. Um, but it's just being able to withstand those waves, building that team around you that withstand those waves with you is really, really important. Co-founders and early team is extremely important. And that's the, the, that's the most important piece of advice I could give. You know, knowing the technology, knowing the, the advancements you've been able to um, provide to both agencies and to commercial um, uh, customers of yours. Um, I mean, I would imagine uh, knowing your technology, they're lining up the door. So how do you choose? What do you, how do you approach that? I, I would imagine it's difficult to decide who you want to be investor because just like re- uh, hiring people, you... Uh, you know, the, you need to make sure you have the right um, chemical compound. Is there any advice for the, the next generation of CEOs about how you've been able to be so effective at choosing not only your employees, but also your investors? Yeah, I think it's, again, I'm learning. I'm not going to say that I was able to do it from the get-go, and I still think I'm learning. But for us, um, this is all about relationships. Um, in fact, I met my Series A investor, you know, one of their partners probably three years before I, or two years before I even raised from them, right? So I think um, when you think about investors, it's about relationships. It's about who's actually going to help you. I think it's it's very easy to get money in this market, um, but it's not very easy to get money that will work for you, Right. That's very, very important. Are they giving you the right intros? Are they going to help you manage your business and grow even when the times are difficult? Are they going to stick beside you when the times are difficult? But I do think that that really changes depending on what what level of funding you are at, right? We're fairly early on, which means it's really important who give, who I get money from. But as you get larger and larger, and then you've got a different set of advisors, right? That you're not just leaning on your investors to be your advisors. Then, you know, maybe you want to maximize on getting money at a, at a great valuation, right? So it really depends. I think at this stage where I've built my my company, it's very important for me to have investors that are value add investors that will help again, weather those storms with you. Um, but make those right introductions that maybe I don't have in my, in my network. You know, I have, uh, four, uh, 20 somethings that are starting their career. My, my kids, um, I always like you with somebody with your kind of background, um, where you're sitting on a very unique vantage point to see, next new hot technology, next new careers are. Any advice you have to my four kids about what the next career, uh, the hot careers coming in the next decade? Oh, I think I've been lucky in that I stumbled upon this uh, almost a decade ago. Um, or and, But I didn't know that this would be the next hot career. I did not know that data science would be this big and statistics and machine learning would be this big. I've been I've been in it for a, a while at this point. So it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine the future, but I think it's an intersection between these types of technologies, right? AI, cybersecurity, but also being able to translate it for non 
you know, deeply technical people, right? I don't think, you know, obviously I want everybody to pursue where their passion lies. Um, I think that's really important for being successful, but there is something to be said, but there's an intersection between translating deep tech to be tangible and useful for society. Um, and that I think is, is a really cool place to be. I haven't see, really seen a lot of careers just yet in this space, but I think that's where the future is going to lie is, as um, there's going to be more and more bifurcation between deeply technical people and policymakers. If you could find that intersection, that is extremely powerful because you're essentially a translator um, for powerful technologies and for, and for how people need to implement it. So I'm curious and I hope that that's going to be something that people pursue. Is there any question that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share or something, uh, you know, you've had such great success in your career? Oh, you're very kind. I'm still very, I'm still very much in this beginning, which is, I think, you know, especially when you think about starting a startup, it's really about resiliency um, and just continuing on that path, but also changing where you need to change. So I think one particular question is, you know, what made you decide to go from building computer vision as a service to building a SaaS product? Um, and I think that is because we had to be resilient, which is we thought about who our customers are. We thought about who would buy it. We thought about how we would scale the company. Um, and that was a journey to get to where we are building this no-code end-to-end platform. So I think the most important piece of advice and, and you know, I guess, question that I, I'm constantly thinking about, which is how to remain flexible to wait to the way technology is changing, to the way customers are buying. Um, that's something that that I think about every day. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Devaki Raj. I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some really seriously valuable advice. Thank you so much. That was really fun. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.